Hello, and welcome to the Agape Fellowship, where we read God's Word verse by verse. We are now in Matthew chapter 3. We are learning about John the Baptist, his life, and his ministry. John was sent to prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. He called people to confess their sins and repent, and baptize them in the waters of the Jordan River. Let us listen in to know more about John and his ministry. Verse 7. But when he saw many Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said to them, Brood of wipers, who warned you? to flee from the wrath to come. Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. And do not think to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan in his, is in his hand, and he will thoroughly cleanse the threshing floor and gather the wheat into the barn, but he will burn the chaff with unquenchable fire. So when he sees the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to uh, the baptism, he calls them a brood of wipers who warned you. Some background on this. When Jews were exiled into Babylon, prior to Jews exiled to Babylon, their religion was a mosaic religion. In other words, their, their highest appeal was to the mosaic law, the prophet, the law, and the prophets, and so on. Not that they followed it 100%. In fact, there were a lot of idol worship right up until the Babylonian exile. And there were a lot of sins. I'm not saying that, but their main part was the mosaic law. It was exactly as it was. It was prophesied, there were prophets, there were priests, and they spoke about it, even though they corrupted some of it, but that was what the Mosaic law was. It was in Hebrew, and they got it in Hebrew. However, on the return from Babylon, now that 70 years later, a generation had passed. They lived in Babylon, and now a new generation was returning uh, from Babylon um, to um, Jerusalem and Judea. Something happened. When they came back, they had lost their knowledge of the Hebrew language. Many of them knew bits and pieces of the Hebrew language. And their lack of awareness of the Mosaic scripture, that no, they did not have much idea what was the Mosaic scripture. Now, if you go back, if you take your time to go back and look at Ezra and Nehemiah, these were the guys who came back from Babylon. You know what they did? They stood the entire day and listened to the Mosaic Law and all of those. Because they were hearing it for the first time and many cried and repented. And they had never heard this because they were, technically they were Babylonians, Jewish 
Babylonian Jews, and they were just coming back. And so they had lost almost all of Hebrew. So what rose in its place was a group of people that was able to interpret. They took the Mosaic law and they interpreted it for people's consumption because they didn't know Hebrew themselves. Many of them didn't know Hebrew themselves. Some knew Aramaic, um, some knew uh, Babylonian language, um, which was Aramaic in some places, and some knew um, other things, whatever there was other languages, or, but not many. Only time that Hebrew was spoken of was within the temple. Out of that rose a people called the Pharisaic Judaism. Pharisaic Judaism is a group of people that actually interpreted what was written in the scriptures for consumption because the rest of them couldn't understand what was written in there because of language issues and so on. But the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they, they understood the Hebrew. They and, did. And, and the they, most of the general population didn't. They did. The general population didn't. The, yeah. the Pharisees, they went to rabbinical school and learned it and they interpreted it. Hmm. Now, a problem arose as a result of it. The problem was, it was no longer mosaic. It was interpretation through this layer, interpretation, interpretational layer is what they got. And this was based on traditions, interpretations, and so on, so that by the time the general population got what they had to, it was not Mosaic law anymore. It was, you must have heard of Talmud, you must have heard of Mishnah, and these, these are commentaries on the scripture. And I'll give you an example for Thou shalt keep Sabbath holy. It's a Mosaic law. Keep Sabbath holy. There are 26 chapters in the Mishnah to explain to the common folk what does it mean? Practically, what does it mean? So you can imagine the number of steps, the number of procedures, the number of things that they had to do in order to say that you have to keep Sabbath holy. That's why that guy that Jesus healed the crippled couldn't carry his mat because that was one of the laws, right? All of them. You will see many of those things happen in, as we go travel through the book of Matthew, Gospel of Matthew. You're going to see over and over again because there were interpretations. Now, so that happened to Judaism. Beware for us Christians, it has happened to us also. The first century was from scriptures. Second century on, we've had a mishmash of Greco-Roman introductions and many other things that have crept in and we have forgotten the source and we, we sort of rely on that interpretation, interpretational class of people then we better be careful. And that's the reason I, even though I go to a seminar, I'm warning you about the seminaries and things that come out of there, is that it is not scriptural. 
It is based on its layers and layers of crud. Think of 2000 years of crud that's been built up. Even if it's a micro layer that over 2000 years, it's a whole lot of crud. And so we have to be careful that we scrape it down, get down to the basic, get down back to the scriptures and see what it says. When could you, Jesus, give, us, when, could you, yeah. give, could you give us an example of the crud? <laughs> there are too many. I'll come back to it. Um, I'll come back to it. Um, I, I, yeah. so may I say something? Yes. So, yeah, it's interesting at uh, this point. Like, when you notice what happened in Christendom, um, uh, over the centuries, uh, like, eventually, the priests, the priests of the time uh, take charge of uh, what it is, their interpretation of scripture. So, basically, the scripture could only be uh, written in Latin and only the priest knew Latin and it was not a very common language and so the commoners are separated from uh, scriptures and uh, in fact uh, even we notice the first Bible translators when they wanted to give it in the common man's language they were in fact uh, even burned at the stake for the for the uh, for that uh, because uh, this kind of gave power into the hands of oh. those who sought power in that sense. So it was, uh, that was how it was. And uh, that's uh, important for us to recognize that history as well, I think. And Absolutely. But then the thing is, what we have is so beautiful. The Holy Spirit is with us. He is there to teach us. And that's what God, Jesus himself promised us, you know, he brings us to remembrance and things like that. that is and uh, so it's an interesting point that you make. So, um, uh, Nels, thank you, Naveen. Um, Nels, you mentioned, you know, can you give an example? There are hundreds of examples and we'll come to one of those examples. But I, I will go back to one of my main th themes that I've been talking about. And you've heard me say this a hundred times and I'll keep saying it till I'm, uh, till I'm gone which is basically, you are a royal priesthood. You are responsible for your own salvation and you are responsible unto God and no one else. And when a fellowship comes together, it is not one man standing on a pulpit and saying things, but rather it's the entire body that's full of the Holy Spirit uh, that is able to encourage one another with words, with hymns, psalms, and uh, uh, many of well, the scriptures and so on. But that's not what happens today in a church. You walk in, there's some music, and there's a guy that stands there and talks, and then you say, oh, great, and then we walk out. That yeah. is not church. That is not church. Church is you have the Holy Spirit and you are accountable and responsible to use your the Holy Spirit given gifts that you have for the edification of the body. We talk about the members of the body. How come there's one member that talks and nobody else can edify anybody else? We are called to come together in fellowship and to edify one another. That's why uh, you know, I want for each one of us to take a portion, you know, and I encourage every one of you every day. You've heard me say this every time we come together. You are responsible. Thanks, Lenore, for stepping up and saying, I want to pray tonight. Start off. 
I want every one of you to take up such kind of responsibilities. Do not shrink from that responsibility because you have the Holy Spirit. I want to encourage you to use the gifts of the Holy Spirit that's been given to you to the edification of the body. You will not hear that. Yes, yes, yes. Yes, I'm, thinking about that, I'm thinking about that scripture right now as far as our responsibility, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That is true. Absolutely true. But what I'm talking about is the responsibility to one another. In the body, we said we are members of one body. Right? We, with this, um, Paul tells us we are members of one body. Right. And with one Christ, Christ is ahead. And we are all co-equals. All co-equals. Yeah. We are all co-inheritors. Anil? Yes. Go ahead, I realize Steve. you said we'll get to it, but what came to mind for Nell's uh, layers of crud, one word. Yes. Denominations. <laughs> That's true, too. Good point. <laughs> That's a good one. Uh, I got... Uh, this is why I didn't want to open that can. <laughs> there are lots of them. So let's move on from the crud. We got two cruds, right? <laughs> let's move on. Um, so let's come back to this. Um, so the Pharisees were interpreting scriptures. Thus, by the time John the Baptist arrived on the scene, the traditions of the Pharisee that re, Pharisees had replaced true worship of God. By the way, they had 400 years to do this. <laughs> so they had a long time. From the time, so if you look from a scriptural point of view, from the time of Malachi till John shows up, yeah, that was 400 years. They call it the silent years. It's not really silent, but let's uh, agree to it. It's silent. Let's just for the sake of it, say it's silent. It was during those 400 years that this Mosaic law became Pharisaic law and the traditions became more important than the law itself. The true meanings of what it was, and that's why Jesus is going to step into the Sermon on the Mount and you're going to see that he says, they say blank, but I say, and then he returns them back to the original intent of what the scripture was meant to be. Now you understand what's going on. Why did Jesus have to go back and say, but I say, well, you're seeing a portion of it. Traditions had layers and layers. 400 years of traditions had caked itself into the system so that by the time Jesus came along, it was not the Judaism or it was not the law or the prophet that, that Moses and the prophets had shown them. It was something completely different. So what defines a Pharisee? There are certain things that define what is a Pharisee. First of all, they believe that one, they believe that one is made righteous by keeping the law. By law, I don't mean Mosaic law. I mean their law. You get it? They put their own law. And if you obey them, then you're righteous. 
um, now they connect those laws to the underlying um, Pentateuch. But we are talking about following Mishnah and the Talmud and so on. Those are interpretations uh, of what the original law, the Pentateuch is. And so they believe themselves to be righteous because that was the whole thing. Their life was intended to fulfill every one of those laws. Can you tell me a person from the Bible who was so intent on following every step of the law? Paul. Paul, exactly. He says in Philippians chapter 3, uh, as far as law was concerned, perfect. In other words, he, that was what he lived for, was to complete every piece of crud, as I called it, that had baked in for 400 years. He followed it. He knew scriptures, he knew Mishnah, he knew Talmud, he knew all of these things, and he followed them, kept them perfectly. So did Nicodemus, by the way. So did Joseph of Arimathea, by the way. So did many others. And why do I talk about Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus? Yeah, you probably know why I'm saying those two names. They were secret believers. They became secret believers in Christ Jesus. Now, second thing, they interpreted the law based on their tradition. So their tradition took precedence or priority over the Mosaic law. You will see that in Matthew 15. If you'd like to go back and look into that, you can see in Matthew 15, you will see that it's the way it's been done. They held the traditions, that's number three, is they held the traditions to be equal or greater authority than scripture itself. Why? Because they ran the roost. They ruled the roost. So they could say whatever they want. And if you want it, remember that, that uh, kid, uh, that man who was born blind, his parents didn't want to say, and because why? They were fearful that they'll throw him out of the synagogue. You see, that's what the church is doing today. At least from my old country, that's what they do still. They use the traditions, they use the power that they have um, to squeeze the living daylights out of these people. That's what happened to that man born blind and the parents and ultimately the man born blind was thrown out of the synagogue if you remember that portion. You remember that, right? We'll come to it. And finally, they were hypocritical. The fact of the matter is they had all these things, but they just couldn't live up to the law. Even though their life was lived to complete the law, they just couldn't hold it. The burden was too heavy. The yoke of the burden was so heavy that they just couldn't. Even the Pharisees couldn't. They just couldn't handle that burden. Hence, they showed piety when, when they're outside and, you know, in public, they showed, oh, I'm so righteous. I'm so, you know, that's what Jesus says. You know, you stand in the corners and you say your prayers. You're willing to tithe on the cumin and the mint. But on the weightier things, you don't care. Why? Because they just couldn't do it. And this is the reason why Jesus later on says, come unto me those who are heavy laden. Adele.
Yes. How about calling them the whitewashed sepulchers? That was really something. The what? The sepulcher? The whitewashed sepulchers. Oh, the whitewashed sepulchers. That yes. was really, that's really, it was really uh, an indictment. Yeah. Oh, that's exactly that. Uh, exactly what you—that's been said. The the hypocrisy. You wash the outside of the uh, the cup, but the inside is still dirty. So on the outside they put on a nice show, but the inside is still—it was just too heavy a burden for them. Weren't they also chosen by Herod to, to be to be Pharisees? Uh, yes, um, that's what I mentioned. That they were a paid-for class. Right. I mentioned this last week also. Yeah, oh, that's right. You, you did. Yeah, okay. the, they were a paid-for. Now, what Herod did, just so that you're aware, he destroyed the Sanhedrin, and then he put people in the Sanhedrin that were that would support the Roman cause. And so also the chief priest. This is the only time there were two chief priests, Hannes and there were two, there were two people, Caiaphas. Caiaphas, Hannes and Caiaphas, two high priests. Never heard of this. And the Sanhedrin. What happened? This was a setup. It was completely fixed. It was a rigged Sanhedrin, a rigged class. By the time Jesus arrives, it's a completely rigged class, um, and they partnered with Herod the Edomian, who partnered with the Romans to keep the peace, because no one could keep the peace in that land. Never. The Jews were too, were too much to handle. I thought Annas was a high priest before Caiaphas. No, they were at the same time. Oh. They were at the same time. They were they were in laws, father in law and son in law. So they they so this was completely rigged system. That's we'll come to that when we get to Jesus' point. But my point with regards to Pharisees was this: these were some of the attributes of the Pharisees, and we see that you feel sad for them, and you see how Paul himself was struggling as a Pharisee. He says, "Out oh, the Pharisees, I was perfect." So what does John call them? He calls them a brood of wipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? John accused these leaders of wanting to appear anxious to, to receive the Messiah, to get ready for the Messiah, but there was not a true repentance. These are the same guys, you know, the fixed bunch, the rigged, the fixes in. This is the deep state. So these guys... They had come to check out on who, what is this John all about? And so when they come, you know, they got to show that they're righteous, remember? Oh, they want the Messiah. Oh, of course I want the Messiah. Messiah's coming. I got to get ready. So they are getting ready to jump into the water. And John says, hold on, you brood of wipers. Who told you that you can flee from the wrath that's to come? And he says this, this is very interesting in verse 9. Do not think to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our fathers, for I say to you, God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. Traditions, traditions, traditions. <laughs> you heard that from um, the movie Fiddler on the Roof. This I know personally. How do I know personally? 
I come from a part of the world where traditions and this lineage is a big deal. I trace my, I was born into a Christian family, but that Christian family became Christians as a result of Thomas coming to India. And so we trace and say, oh, you know what? I've been Christians for generations. I can go trace all the way to Thomas. That's what my families would say. And so that's the same because it comes from, you know, where did that, my families or, you know, my, uh, my whole country families, where did they get that verbiage from? Where did they get it? Same, from the same bucket. Oh, you know what? I've been a Jew ever since Father Abraham. Because I'm a Jew from the time of Father Abraham, sure, I'm going to go into the kingdom of heaven because I'm Father Abraham's child. In my old tradition, they say, oh, you know what? I've been a Christian since ever since Thomas came and baptized my great, 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 50, 100 times removed grandfather. So I'm a Christian. So sure, I'm going into the kingdom of heaven. But what John tells us here is, I, he doesn't care whether your, your parents were Christians. He doesn't care whether your great parents were Christians and you got a Christian name, so-called Christian name. John is saying it doesn't matter. God doesn't need you or your name if there's no repentance. He'll take a stone and make a generation without you. It's very, I mean, think on John. He's cutting them down. He's telling them, look, it doesn't matter. God doesn't need you. And don't come to God saying that Father Abraham was your father. No, he was not your father. And Jesus says, no, your father is the devil. John has begun it. Jesus finishes it later on. So he tells them, don't say that father, you know, we have father Abraham as our father. No, God doesn't need that. He'll raise up children from stone. Salvation is not, here's the bottom line. Salvation is not passed from generation to generation through your DNA, through your church tradition, through your culture, through your lineage, or your parental coattails. Anil? Uh, um, I've heard it said there are no grandchildren in, in, in Christianity. A good one, yes, exactly. There are no grandchildren, only children. So, and those children are adopted. Not <laughs> that's right. Good one. Good one, Steve. Adopted children. He's been. He's given us the right of children as as uh, his children. In John one nine to eleven. He's given us a right. Those that believe, he's given them the right to be called the children of God. And, and Legal right. However, just being born in a church or being baptized in a church or your parents were uh, you know, the elders in a church or you have a churchly name and whatever. Yes. Sorry. He's able to make... He'll be able to make one of you from stone. He doesn't need you. Yes, go ahead, Nils. You know, we don't have a we don't have a problem in this country of systemic racism. We have a problem of general sin in this country. This is true. 
That's, that's the issue, you know. We'll talk about that separately, but let's focus on what we have that's here. Something I've been, just something I've been thinking about, and now when okay. I hear about all this. All right. So, a different topic for another day. Okay. Here, here, what we have is God is able to create children, and no coattails, no DNA is going to get you there. And so if you think, or if I think that it's going to be through DNA, if I think because I was dunked in water as a baby, and if I think that because whatever, whoever did something many years ago, so I'm going to get a place, I'm a, um, let's say an elder in the church and whatever, so my children will be Christians. No, not in God's book. John is very clear. So he cuts it right at the top, even before Jesus comes. He says, no, it's not going to work. It was widely thought. And the, by the way, the reason what they thought was, well, Abraham's righteousness will be imputed to me because he's got so much righteousness, so I can just slide. He's got righteousness for 10 generations, so I can slide underneath it. These were some of the thoughts that the Pharisees had. And then he goes on to say, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I. Sandals I'm not worthy to carry. Oh my gosh. He will baptize me with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He will baptize me with fire. John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. Not of the Holy Spirit. The baptism of the Holy Spirit and fire came on the day of Pentecost. Let's read that portion and close out for tonight and we'll pick it up next time. Let's read as a closing uh, Acts 1, 4 to 8. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. This is Jesus talking about this baptism that is about to come. He says, I will, John baptized you with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And then he says, but when you receive power, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Prior to this event, I want for us to look at one more. Prior to this event, Something else took place on the day of resurrection. So I want for one of you to read that. John 20, 19 to 23. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled, 
For fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed onto them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Why did I want to read this one also? You notice that on the first day of the new week, uh, the day that Jesus was resurrected, he came and stood with them. And they did this very interesting thing. He breathed on them and he said, receive the Holy Spirit. That is the day that they were filled with the Holy Spirit in, in internally filled in the Holy Spirit. They received it. So for the first time, ever since Adam, for the first time, the Holy Spirit takes residence within a human person. That's then the how come David said, remove not thy Holy Spirit from me? It seemed like... He yes, had sir. Good, good point. Uh, that, um, and I'll come back to that. I was going to talk about that in a moment. Since Adam, this is the first time that the re God was taking residence in people. There were exceptions through the Old Testament, including John, the one we just now read. He was filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb. And there were exceptions that God made, like the other one you mentioned exactly, where David. There were exceptions in which case God put his Holy Spirit in them for a particular purpose. In some, it was upon them. So, they become the temple, now the apostles, and from now, from then on, they've become the temple of God. Because now the sins have been forgiven, it's been paid for, all the sins have been forgiven. Why did they now, have to wait to Pentecost then? Good question. Notice the difference. One is in, the other is upon. Notice that, and that's why I wanted to bring these two together. The one is in, the other is upon. The Holy Spirit deals with us in three different ways. If you look through scriptures, the Holy Spirit deals with us in three different ways. When we are far away from God, God, Holy Spirit has not gotten, I mean, has not left us or has not just let go of us. He walks alongside us, convicting us of sin, convicting us. He's along with us. He's with us. He's convicting us of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. That's the Holy Spirit's job. That's before you become a believer. When you become a believer, the Holy Spirit takes residence in us. And when God wants to do something spectacular in your life and some other things, he comes upon you. Without the Holy Spirit's power, you can do nothing. 
Remember Jesus said that? You can do nothing. And so what does Jesus tell his disciples? Tarry in Jerusalem for in a few days the Holy Spirit will come upon you and he will empower you with power to be my witnesses. So as a believer, you, be, you've, you have received the Holy Spirit in you and he's upon you and he pours special unction, special blessings when he's got a special work for you to do. For example, Paul and Barnabas, before their ministry, the first ministry, first journey, missionary journey, you will see that the Holy Spirit spoke to the church in Antioch and said, hey, separate from me, Paul and Barnabas, for a special mission. And they put the hand upon them and they pray for them and they send them. So God's Holy Spirit is what gives us the power to do anything. In fact, even our common things in life, let's say it's a Let's say it's something like, you know, your job. Or let's say you are at a difficult job, you don't know what to do and you're struggling. It's the Holy Spirit's power upon you that gives you the special discernments and the strength to, to move you through it to get you to where God wants you to be. We don't understand how much the Holy Spirit is working in us and through us and with us and he's upon us and all these things he's basically and completely encased us in himself with this Shekinah glory we don't see the Shekinah glory but that's what Adam and Eve were clothed with John had stinging words of rebuke for the religious leaders of the day who neglected the law of God and followed man-made rules and traditions that burdened the people and led them nowhere near God. These are sobering words indeed for some of us who are proud of our traditions and associations rather than a personal relationship with God. John speaks about the Holy Spirit from God. Hope you were blessed by this study and do join us in the next episode to wind up chapter 3.